Thank you for joining us at Praise Chapel Paramount. We hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday morning service. Also, we'd love to hear what God has done in your life. To share your story, email us at info at pcparamount.org. Again, we hope you enjoy this message. Well, God bless you this morning. Happy to be here at my beautiful home church. And you guys have, uh, we must be really following the theme because you guys got a lot of joy. I love it. So as was previously mentioned, Pastor Omar Lopez and his family are enjoying their time in Texas, uh, which is a well-deserved opportunity that they have to spend some time with family. And so I will be your substitute teacher this morning, but there still will be a test. (laughs) No, but uh, glad to see you. So I want to talk to you this morning continuing on our our theme of joy, and I know the theme was somewhat tied into Thanksgiving, but uh, you know, now that Thanksgiving has passed, I'm I'm the type of guy that kind of just jumps right into Christmas right after. In fact, I kind of just skip Thanksgiving mentally, and I, I mean, my wife had the house decorated, I think, two weeks before Thanksgiving were decorated for Christmas, and she likes to have it up so she can stare at those decorations for much longer, but... um, you know, we, we are entering this season and the holiday season or the holy day season, as some would call it. And it really is a time where people become a little bit more reflective if they're paying attention to what the messages are concerning these holidays. And as you become more reflective, you begin to really think about things in life and what you have and what God has blessed you with. And really, that is a source of joy is recognizing what God has given to you, recognizing what you already have, recognizing that you are doing much better than you would have if not for the grace of God. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about this this idea of joy, but I really want to tie it in by talking to you about the prophetic words that Jesus himself fulfilled, the odds of him fulfilling those prophetic words, and what the fulfillment of those prophecies mean for us today. So the prophecies of Jesus... And what they mean for us today are profound. Now, the entire book, every single book of the Bible, I should say, is all about Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation. From the very beginning all the way until the very end. I mean, you look at the beginning of creation and the moment that man falls into sin. Man turns against God and God in his wisdom makes a promise and he promises that he will crush the head of the enemy through the seed of the woman, not plural. It's the seed. It's speaking of one individual, this seed, the Messiah. You follow that seed all the way down and you'll find that Jesus is in every book of the Bible. You go into the book of Exodus and you'll see him reflected in the tabernacle. You can go all the way to Psalms and see the prophetic words about the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus even. You read of the prophets, and a lot of the things that the prophets prophesied had what's called dual meaning, meaning that it had a life application for the people hearing it in their time, but then doubled as a prophetic word for the future that we can glean from today. 
So these prophecies are many, but I want to read to you this very interesting study. Now, to me, it was interesting. I hope you're as interested as I was. I, I tend to geek out on these sort of things. So, um, but, but this was a powerful study. I, I had looked up and I wanted to do some research on, on what were the, the, the numerical odds, the probability of Jesus fulfilling any one of these prophecies. And so believe it or not, there's actually a very detailed study that was done on this. So I'm going to read some of this to you. I'm going to go back and forth between some of the report that I'm reading. And then I'll also fill in the gaps with some layman's terms that I needed help finding myself. Um, but here the study says this. The InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at Pasadena City College sponsored a class in Christian evidences. One section of this work of this class was to consider the evidence produced by the fulfilled prophecies referring to the first advent of Christ. The students were asked to be very conservative in their probability estimates. This means if they thought the odds were one in a thousand, be a little more conservative, say the odds were one in a hundred, and so forth. So they were asked to be conservative in their estimates. They discussed each prophecy at length, bringing out various conditions which might affect the probability of any man fulfilling it. After discussion, the students agreed unanimously on a definite estimate as being both reasonable and conservative, at the end of the evaluations, the students expressed their feelings thus. If anyone were able to enter into the discussions to help in placing the estimates as they had done, that person would certainly agree that the estimates were conservative. So in other words, they're really drilling in the fact that they were very, very, very conservative in their estimates. They're not exaggerating here for the sake of the argument which they're trying to make. They had to be conservative. Otherwise, someone might accuse them of exaggeration and dismiss their findings. So... They go and they start to study the prophecies of Jesus and they take the odds that he would fulfill any one thing. And these were the eight prophecies that were the focus of the initial study. So, number one, the, the eight prophecies or, or the prophecies that I have listed here, uh, the fact that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. That's found in Micah 5.2. The fact that someone would specifically speak of preparing a way for the Messiah. So the fact that someone would find it their special task to prepare the way for your birth. Now, let's just stop there for a second. Just the idea that someone could be born in Bethlehem alone, that's not really something that would be difficult to cause to occur. The odds of being born in Bethlehem are really not as slim as that second prophecy I gave you. I mean, imagine how many people have been born in Bethlehem. There have been several. And so, this prophecy alone, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, is not what created the final result of the probability. Are you following me thus far? Okay. So, he was born in Bethlehem. Now, the odds of that, pretty good. Especially back in those days, there was... It was somewhat of an epicenter, and, and they had, they, people, some people were forced to go back there for different things. And so we see that the fact that he was born in Bethlehem is not too great, a ch I mean, not, not too big of an odd to overcome. So someone specifically will prepare the way for him. Now imagine somebody being born and finding it their life's mission to announce your birth. That was John the Baptist that was prophesied in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Now the odds of that, probably not likely to happen. You merge that with the fact that a man was born in Bethlehem and then a man would find in his life assignment to announce his birth. If anybody announced your birth, I mean, that would be quite special. But just pairing these two prophecies together would create these odds that are difficult to overcome. Throw in the fact 
that he would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey, which is prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. Though in the fact that it was prophesied that he would be wounded in his hands as a result of a betrayal by a friend. Think about that. Wounded in his hands as a result of a betrayal by a friend. That's Zechariah chapter 13 verse 6. I mean, many of us have experienced betrayal, but very few of us have been wounded in our hands as a result of being betrayed by a friend. So as you can see, as you put these prophecies together, all of which Jesus fulfilled, you begin to compound the odds against him. The probability of any of this happening begins to go down. So the fact that he he betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, the fact that his betrayer would attempt to return the money and the money would ultimately be returned back to him and they would be used to buy a field from the potter. That's a very specific prophecy. So they listed eight of these, eight very simple prophecies. And going back to the study now, it says this, the conservative conclusion they came up with for the odds of any one man fulfilling these eight prophecies. Are you hearing this? These eight prophecies in one, is one in 10 to the 28th power. That's the number one with 28 zeros after it. That's fulfilling eight of these prophecies. Okay, so let's try to visualize this, the study says. If you mark one of 10 tickets, you know how we do our raffles here at church? There's about, you know, a couple hundred of you. There's a couple hundred tickets. You get a ticket that's one in 200 or so. So now here's what they say the chances are of him fulfilling those eight prophecies. So it says, if you mark one in 10 tickets and place all the tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them, and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the tickets, if there are 10 of them, is one in 10. Now, suppose that we were to take just 10 to the 17th power silver dollars, those little coins, and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all of the state of Texas two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and then stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. So I don't know if you've ever driven through Texas. I mean, Steve, you drove my brother when you guys, when, you, when you, we helped him move over there. How long was that drive? Like what, 14 hours? And, and you were falling asleep, I'm sure, and trying to stay awake. No, no, okay, yeah, you were being safe. Uh, <laughs> so, so imagine, I could drive for hours and hours and hours through Texas and see nothing. Now, what they're saying here is these eight prophecies, for him to have fulfilled them, the odds of any one man fulfilling them are the same as filling the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver coins, marking one, and then getting it right the first try. They actually continued. So then they asked the question, what are the odds of filling 48 prophecies? Now, this is where it gets really crazy. You thought that was interesting. Look at this. Are you enjoying this as much as I enjoyed this? This is so interesting to me. Okay, so what are the odds of fulfilling 48 prophecies? Applying the same principles of probability used so far, we find the chance of anyone, that any one man fulfilled all 48 prophecies to be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now, this is a really large number, and it represents an extremely small chance. Let us try to visualize it. The silver dollar, which we used before, is entirely too large. We must select a smaller object. The object they chose? The electron. The electron is about as small as an object as we know of. 
It is so small that it will take you 2.5 times 10 to the 15th power of them laid side by side to make a line, single file, one inch long. If we were going to count the electrons in this line one inch long and counted 250 each minute, and if we counted day and night, it would take us 19 million years to count just the one inch line of electrons. If we had a cubic inch of these electrons and we tried to count them, it would take us 1.2 times 10 to the 38th power years. Now, to put this into perspective, there aren't that many electrons in the entire known universe. 48 of the prophecies so mark one electron if you can and then out of the all the mass of the entire universe pick that one electron that's the odds of him having fulfilled these 48 prophecies now here's what's interesting to me bible scholars note that jesus fulfilled not eight not 48 but over 300 prophecies from the old testament we're going to look at three of them today now, I want to focus on a f- three of the major prophecies. There, now, there are, many of them are major, and these aren't all of the major ones. But I want you to keep that in mind. The fact that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies, I mean, the fact that he would have fulfilled eight, that would have been enough to say, you're the Lord. You're the Messiah. But it's not just the fact that he fulfilled these prophecies against great odds. I mean, no man can do that unless it was God. It's what these prophecies having been fulfilled imply to us today. It's what they mean to us today. So you can count on the fact that these odds, the odds of fulfilling these prophecies were so great that anyone who fulfilled them was definitely sent by God. And in knowing that, you find that great hope is also found in these prophecies. Because of the fact that they were fulfilled, we know that we have hope. We know that God has not abandoned us. We know that God is interested in interacting with humanity. So, number one, I want to take a look at the prophecy of the birth of Jesus. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the Bible says, But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says, All right, then the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, if I'm being completely transparent with you, concerning these prophecies, there is a debate around them. There are some who will look at Isaiah chapter 7, 14, and they'll say, well, this wasn't about Jesus. This was actually about what it applied to directly in the context. Basically, the prophet talking to the king, saying, ask God of a sign for her sign. The king can't think of anything. He says, I don't want to test God. So then the prophet tells him, well, here's what God says to you. I'll give you a sign. So you can look at that in context and say, well, that's not about Jesus. But it's important to remember that as the apostles pointed out, and as the early church pointed out, that Many of these Old Testament prophecies have what's called dual meaning. So they have a meaning that applies to the time, and then they have a meaning that applies to the Messiah. So looking at these two prophecies in Micah 5, 2, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. By the way, between Micah 5 and then the birth of Jesus, I believe it was about 700 years. Um, And so we see the fulfillment in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. 
The Bible says at that time the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. So here we see that circumstances forced Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem where Mary would have the baby. And this was a fulfillment of prophecy, a prophecy that promised that the child who would be born would be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Now think about what happened here. Because what we can glean from this prophecy, the truth that we can find hope in, is this simple reality. Number one, the birth tells us that God has not abandoned us. Think about it. God created man. Creation falls. God comes to restore. Now there's a... There's a lot behind why God had to come as a man. In short, God had to make a covenant with mankind. Man was unable to keep his end of any covenant as we read all throughout history. So finally God says, okay, I'm going to make a covenant with myself as a man and turn around, shake hands with myself, and it'll be between me and man represented by me. So he represents both parties. When God came down as a man, it was called the incarnation. The enfleshment, the, 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 the spirit becoming physical, God becoming man. Whoever thought of such a thing? You couldn't, you couldn't make this sort of thing up. This is the story of how God came to involve himself in the troubles of mankind. How God came to free man from the sickness of sin. Not leaving us abandoned to our humanity, but coming with love. Coming with power to set captives free. God becoming flesh. Now, I want you to really think about this. I would have a better chance at explaining this phone to an insect than I would at explaining God if I could even explain him. Let's say I knew everything I needed to know to explain him. It would be easier for me to explain this phone to an insect than it would be for me to explain God to you. Think about the largeness of who God is. Eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent everywhere at all times. The universe itself could not contain him. Outside of time, outside of space, beyond matter. Simply spoke and brought about reality into existence. With sheer will formed everything that we now see. Plans for hundreds of years into the future. Wisdom that helped to navigate man throughout the eons of history. This is a being who the universe cannot contain. This is a being so far beyond our comprehension that we can't even begin, and that's not an exaggeration, we can't even begin to understand the fullness of his nature. Yet this being, this God, eternal, 
became a man. The work by the Holy Spirit, which caused Mary to conceive, that work by the Holy Spirit was so complete, so thorough, lacking in no detail that Jesus was able to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That Colossians was able to say that all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily. That means God took on a body and how that's even possible. That an eternal being could come to exist in a finite physical existence, it's beyond me. All I know is that the Holy Spirit opened an impossibly tiny door, and through it, the Creator stepped into creation. Lived among us. Lived as us. Luke chapter 2 verse 52 says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. And in favor with God and with man. Now think about this. God grew. God grew in wisdom. I understand the stature a little more. That's his physical being. He grew in stature. And then this what really bothers me is that Jesus, God, grew not, not just in wisdom and in stature... He, he grew in favor with God and with man. So totally subjecting himself to the human experience that he chose to strip off those things which we would attribute to divine power. The humility that it would take to do that. The humility that it would take to say, I will lower myself to become one of them. Demonstrate himself. Allow himself to be questioned. Allow himself to be confronted. I don't know. If I was God, I, I don't like to lose debates. If I was God and those Pharisees came, I would have just incinerated them like Elijah the prophet. Oh, you want a question? Oh, okay, here. Boom. Done. God dwelling among us, living among us. He was willing to do that. Think, no, no, really think about that. He was willing to leave the comforts of heaven. I'm not trying to be mean, but you don't know how happy I am to get back to the United States when I travel out of the country. And I always, I often say, how, how awful would it be to be stuck outside of this country, those people who are you know, people all over the world, they're fighting to get to this country. I don't care what anyone says. We, we are blessed to live in this nation. It's, that's a fact. You know, especially my generation, wants, <laughs> my generation wants to complain about every little thing. We want free this and we want free that. Like, oh, stop it. Grow, I believe they'll grow out of that one day. But, but, but we, we see, that was, that was a little jab at that, uh, that thinking there. Um, but no, but, but I think about it like, the fact that we get to live here. And then I'll go to places like we just got back from Pompeii. It took us 40 hours of travel from L.A. to Pompeii just to get there. Almost two days of nonstop travel. We're talking on, either on the airplane or sitting in the airport staring at the floor. 40 hours. No, no, no. 40 hours. 
That is a work week. That's right. I didn't even think of that. On the way back, it took 24. And as soon as I touched ground, I mean, I, I came off that plane. I was like that soldier that came back and I started kissing the floor. But I thought about it. What it must have been like to leave the perfection of heaven. Go through the birthing. I mean, he, was, he was in the womb nine months. I mean, to go from the vastness of eternity to the womb. And then grow in this, this body that he, 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 he sees as being corrupted, that he has to maintain. This tells me something about God, and it's something that I think that we often overlook because we've heard it so many times. But God is involved with us. God has not abandoned us. And He will never leave you to struggle with your humanity alone. Number two, and I don't know where I am on time. Oh my goodness. What are the odds I finish this sermon on time? <laughs> They're pretty good, actually. Number two, his life was prophesied about. Now, there were many things prophesied about the life of Jesus, but I want to focus on one scripture in particular. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, the Bible says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me. To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted. And to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. Now, back in Isaiah 61, this had an entirely different meaning. But today you see Jesus having said in Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse number 14. Now imagine the boldness of this. Hold, hold Isaiah up there. Imagine the boldness of this. How, how they revered, revered scripture. How, they, how they, they so upheld the law. How they, how they so admired the prophets. It was embedded into the culture that you were to reverence the word. That, that this, this word was to be treated delicately and, and, and with respect. And the men who knew it were, were, tr were treated among the best in society. And then here you see this prophecy. Here you see this word which is describing what they believe to be the Messiah. And then Jesus comes in. In verse 14 of Luke 4, then Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. So this is after he was baptized and the Holy Spirit came. Remember Matthew chapter 3 and then Matthew chapter 4. He goes into the wilderness and now we see him here um, later on in the gospel of Luke. This is after all of that. He comes in the Holy Spirit's power, reports about him spread to the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home... He went, as usual, to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll. Watch this. Remember how they think about scripture back then. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All the eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Wow, that's bold. Imagine me reading a scripture and then sitting down and go, that's being fulfilled right now. 
But this is exactly what Jesus did. The difference, he had the authority to do this. Now this here, the life of Jesus, that life that was modeled by us, that, that prophecy about a coming Messiah who would set the captives free, open the blind eyes, and do these wonderful works of God, that prophecy having been fulfilled is actually to us a model of power. So if, number one, we learn from the birth of Christ that God has not abandoned us, then number two, we learn from the prophecies concerning the life of Christ that God has empowered us with His Holy Spirit. For John chapter 14, verse 12 says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. Now, what does that mean? What, why is that important? Why can we only do greater works because I'm going to be with the Father? Well, he tells us in John chapter 16, verse 7. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. So what he's saying is, greater work shall you do because I go to my Father. What happens when he goes to his Father? He sends his Holy Spirit. Greater work shall you do because I send my Holy Spirit. What did the prophecy say? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. And Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of this prophecy, and I've empowered you to do the same. Amen. Now that is bold. So, number one, the birth of Jesus. God has not abandoned us. Number two, the life of Jesus. It's a model of power. Now, the prophecy I want to focus in on here, in order to read its fulfillment, I can't just read its fulfillment encapsulated as we did here. With the birth of Jesus, I was able to read just about six scriptures, and that showed you the fulfillment of the entire thing. The model of his life and power, that was fulfilled as he read it in Luke 4. He summarized it. Uh, beautifully so in Luke chapter 4. But then number three, the crucifixion. I would have to read a couple chapters of the Bible to show you the crucifixion narrative beginning at the garden. But I want to show you, since we're all primarily um, believers here, and many of us, most of us, I should say, are familiar with the crucifixion narrative, we can go right to the prophecy. And as I read it, you'll recognize it. It's a very famous portion of Scripture, but I want you to really stop and consider the weight of the words being written here. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1 says this, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now this is, in my opinion, one of the most powerful portions of Scripture in all the Bible. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. In other words, we thought it was his own fault that he was crucified. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Think about that. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The prophecy of the crucifixion for us today is the joy of forgiveness. Think of what the scripture is saying. Don't just read it. Look at it. Study it. Think about it. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. What's the difference between a transgression and an iniquity? A transgression is a sinful act that you commit. An iniquity is a sinful state of being. It's inward. He was wounded or cut for our transgressions. There was outward bleeding that cleansed our outward actions. And he was bruised for our iniquities. This is a sinful state. It's a mindset. It's an attitude. It's a heart condition. That's what iniquity is. Iniquity produces transgression. So iniquity is an inner state of darkness. And that iniquity was bled for with bruises, which is an eternal, internal bleed. He was wounded, outward bleeding, for our transgressions, outward sin. He was bruised, inward bleeding, for our iniquities, inner sin. He was wounded for our transgressions. And he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. The chastisement of our peace? This is a great exchange. This means that the fact that we have peace is a result of the fact that he had torment. We often call him the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Peace. I like to say that Jesus was crowned the Prince of Peace with the crown of thorns. The chastisement of our peace. Think about this. Not only did he die for the punishment of your sin. Not only did he die for the, for the, for the, the cleansing of your iniquity. But he died that you might not even experience the tormenting effects of the sin that you've committed. That's powerful. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Meaning, meaning that, that guilt that you think you have to live with. Well, I know God forgave me, but I still live with this shame and guilt. No, no. The chastisement of your peace was upon him. He, he not only died for the sin itself. He not only died for the punishment. He took on the guilt. He took on the shame. He took on the regret. He took on the torment that should have been yours. He took that so you wouldn't have to. If you believe that Jesus died so that you could be forgiven of your sins, then you also must believe that Jesus died that you might have peace and be freed from the bondage of the torment of sin itself. I don't have to live with shame. I don't have to live with guilt. I can live free. It's okay to begin to walk in the joy of your salvation. It's okay to stop looking behind you. It's okay to forgive yourself. It's okay to move on. I'll go even further on this. Oftentimes we commit things and, 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 and you know what? I understand what people are saying when they say there's the sin and he forgives you, but there's still the consequence of sin. And the truth is, I'm just going to be bold with it. The truth is 99% of the consequences are man-made. They're from a system that's religious that brings about punishment that's not even necessary. And in fact... The consequence of your sin 
was forgiven too. The consequence of your sin was taken too. That's like saying, I know, well, God, God gave me just enough wrath so that I feel bad, just enough wrath so that I'm tormented, but he took everything else and he's giving me salvation. No, it's nonsensical to believe that. Either Jesus took it all or he took none of it. And the good news is that Jesus took it all. So we might say, well, well, I'm just dealing with, you know, I'm still dealing with the shame of the past. I'm still dealing with the guilt of this thing I did way back when. And here's the reality is that you probably still ask for forgiveness for things that should have been buried a long time ago. And you come to God and you, here's what happens really in the heavenly realm. You come to him and you say, God, forgive me of, of this, this, and this. He says, I forgive you. You go back, you start to torment yourself. The enemy starts to accuse you. People start to remind you. Then you go back to God. God, forgive me of this. And he says, forgive you of what? Doesn't exist in his record anymore. And we cannot be so arrogant to believe that our judgment is higher than God's judgment. If God has judged you forgiven, then humble yourself and judge yourself forgiven. You need to live by God's standards too. So the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. The fulfillment, the prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus is a demonstration of God's love. It's a demonstration of the fact that you can finally be free. And even as believers, we have to be reminded of this. That you can finally live free. Some of you have been carrying that weight when it wasn't yours to carry. Some of you have been mistaking the accuser for the voice of the Holy Spirit. Some of you have been hanging around people who won't let you forget who you were. It's time to step into the destiny that God has prepared for you. It's time to step into the joy. See, some of you don't have the joy of salvation because you've only been freed from the penalty of sin, which is death, but you've not been cleansed from the tormenting effects on the mind. And it's hard for you to have joy over your salvation because you're still rehearsing the past. Some of you lack joy because you lack peace. Some of you lack joy because you can't forgive yourself. Some of you lack joy because of the bondage of shame and guilt. But I'm here to declare to you today that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was sufficient. He sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he bled on his back when he was whipped. He bled on his head when a crown of thorns was placed upon him. He bled at his hands and in his feet. He bled at his side. And he bled with those internal bruises. When he bled in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was cleansing your will. For it was there that he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. When he was whipped upon his back, it was the fulfillment of the prophecy which said, by his stripes you were healed. And even in the original language, the Hebrew, it does not talk about sin there. It is talking about physical healing. There is no doubt. Crown of thorns represented the bleeding that he bled for your peace of mind. The bleeding on his hands cleansed your actions. The bleeding upon his feet cleansed your path the bruises were the iniquity 
And when he bled on his side, it was the finalization of what was prophesied. It was the final bleeding. It was the seal. He died that you might live. He was tormented that you might have peace. The crucifixion, the prophecy of Christ crucified is joy unspeakable. All wrath poured out on him so that there was none left for you. That's the joy of what Jesus did. Hey, thanks for listening to this week's message from Praise Chapel Paramount. If you want to stay connected, follow us online with Facebook and Instagram at PC Paramount or visit our website at praisechapelparamount.com.